say that. So one little sentence kind of gets it's um, picked out, and, and you miss the big point by focusing on maybe one thing. Um, so, I mean, it happens every day. Uh, a couple years ago, we were in, uh, I was in Colorado on kind of a wilderness trip with a group of people. And uh, we had to, every day we had to do like a, a kind of an adventure wilderness challenge type thing. And it was just an awful week. I mean, it was so hard. Um, and we, the first day, it was a high ropes course. It was kind of high ropes course challenge. Um, but it was never, it was not like a high ropes course that I'd done before. Because um, one, it was high. Like it was, it was very high up in the air, like 50, 35, 40, 50 feet up. Um, and it was long. Like it was an hour, hour and a half type thing to get through. Uh, and so we're watching. You have to pair up with a partner because some of the things you have to do um, involve you trying to do it with a partner. Uh, so you're pairing up with partners. Uh, me and my buddy Adam, we're going to go last. And so we're watching uh, the different groups going. Um, and they're struggling. I mean, they're having a hard time. Uh, in particular, Adam's girl, Kathleen, is up there with her brother. Uh, and she is crying and freaking out the entire time. And so, I mean, she's upset. She's not having a good time. They finally get across. So the whole time we're doing what? I mean, we're throwing encouragement up there. Keep going. You can do it. Um, and so I'm, like, impressing myself with leadership-type stuff. And I'm like, oh, that was really good. Um, and so me and Adam finally get up there. And now, I'm a man. You can see that. Uh, not much of a man, but I'm a man. Uh, and I get up there. Thank you for the- Oh, I get up there, and we had severely underestimated how hard it actually was. And so me and Adam were up there like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And so by about three-fourths of the way through, I don't know if you remember this, Jordan, but there's the little stirrups you had to put your feet in, and you have to kind of like walk across um, like 30 yards of, of the high rope stuff. And by that point, I mean, and particularly doing that, you lose all the energy, all the strength you have in every single one of your muscles. And so if you're not, like, doing it, attempting to get across, you're just kind of hanging because you're attached by the harness leg on the safety rope. So Adam and I are up there just hanging. I mean, I'm done. I'm like, I don't even know how I'm going to get, like, across. I'm up here. I'm going to hang. And we're hanging, and they're throwing encouragement. And so I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but the encouragement doesn't usually hit home right. Uh, it generally produces, like, the slap response in you where you're like, just be quiet. I'm up here, you're down there, <laughs> let me hang, let me do my thing. Well, we're up there hanging, and Kathleen yells up to us. She goes, keep going, guys, I'm so proud of you, you can do it. And I'm a funny guy, so I lean over to Adam, and I thought I whispered, but I, I say to Adam, yeah, says the girl who cried the entire time she was up here. And me and Adam chuckled, and we laughed, and then a few seconds later, I hear Kathleen go, I can hear you. <laughs> Now, throughout the time, throughout the time we were there at the high rose course, I said a lot of inspirational things. I mean, I said a lot of, but it was remarkable. The only thing anyone ever remembers me saying from that time was, says the girl who cried the entire time, um, was the insult <laughs> to Kathleen. And, uh, you know, one little sentence, one little phrase gets picked out and you kind of miss the, the big picture. Um, I'll give one more story. We were, at the very end of the week, we were going up a mountain. We were going up a peak hike. And we were toward the, the top of the mountain. It was like, I think, 14,000 feet high. Uh, and we had been all day climbing up this thing. And the very last little climb that we had to take was just strictly like loose rock. Like it was very uphill and just loose rock. And so we were in a line, one after each other. I mean, you step and big things of rock tumble down. And you have to yell, rock, and everyone kind of dodges out of the way. And we're going up this thing. And I'm kind of pieced together like... What would happen if one of us falls? Like, is there anything, is there anything going to catch us like this rock is falling? And I ask our guide, Steve, I'm like, hey, Steve, I don't know if this is the safest thing we've ever done before. Um, I mean, is this a good idea? And he looks around and he goes, yeah, we're going to make it up to the top. Don't look down. 
which ensures that I was then going to look down. So I turn around and look down and watch these big chunks of rock tumble thousands and thousands and thousands of feet down to the ground. And I'm, of course, imagining myself as that rock tumbling to a very bitter and painful end. And there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing to, to catch you. There's nothing to stop you. There's nothing at all. Um, and, and Steve goes, don't look down. Don't look down because if you fall, you're going to fall. And, and there's not much that's going to stop you. You're going to fall to the ground. Um, and so I think that that story and that phrase in particular is going to be a good controlling metaphor for us as we go through Hebrews, um, particularly this passage. So the author is trying to get his readers to the top of a mountain. I mean, he's trying to get them to a certain point, And during that um, encouragement and exhortation, he's going to have this kind of short little warning about what would happen if you fell. What would happen if you started going down? And so we, we want to look at that and digest that, uh, but then we want to keep our focus on what the author's intention was, which we're going up, we're going here, and this is how we're going to get there. So we'll pick it up in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6, pick it up in verse 1. The author says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Okay, the author um, wants his readers to mature. They, he wants them to get past the basic truths of Christianity and go on to deeper and higher things. And so if you remember where we left off in chapter 5, the author had just started getting revved up talking about Melchizedek. And so from Psalm 110, we have this promise that um, the king... The one who would be Jesus uh, would be a priest, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's starting to get excited about this one to explain it to them. But he anticipates their reaction, which is very similar to ours, which is a glazed over look. Which is a, what? Who? Why are we talking about this? This makes no difference to me. I don't care at all about this. And so he takes a break at the end of chapter 5, if you remember. And he starts going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys, you should be teaching this stuff by now. He was like... Y'all have become sluggish. Y'all have become dull of hearing. He calls them infants. He says, you're on milk when you should be on solid food. And so he's still in this process of slowing down before he actually unpacks the significance of Melchizedek. And he's, he's trying to convince them that they should not be okay with the status quo. That they should not be okay with being stagnant in their knowledge, understanding, and growth in the Christian life. And so he's arguing here that Christians need to learn and embrace deep truths such as what he's about to unpack about Melchizedek from Psalm 110. We need to embrace deep truths. He, he says, um, we're swimming in the shallow end of the pool. I mean, we're swimming in the shallow end, we should be in the deep end. You should be adults by now. You should be growing up into your faith, maturing into your faith. Um, and so he says, uh, platitudes, they're not going to sustain us. They're not going to endure. They're not going to allow us to finish the race strong. Um, a platitude, like a, a cute, catchy saying. Um, uh, something that sounds maybe deep, but isn't so deep. Uh, it's not going to sustain us. And so we unpacked this the last time we worked in Hebrews. Um, but if you have a shallow understanding of who God is, that's only going to sustain you in a very shallow experience of life. So if you have this platitude that God is love, but you've not thought through how that works out, and you've not really um, worked that out in depth and in biblical truth, you just have this platitude, God is love. And then you're in the doctor's office and you find out you have cancer. Or you get a phone call and someone very close to you has been in an accident. You then have no foundation for dealing with that. You have no way of understanding how God is working in and through that. Because you just have this God is love. Well, then why is this happening? How is he allowing this to happen? But if you've 
thoughtfully thought through what the scriptures teach about who God is and how he provides and what he does promise you and what he doesn't promise you, then you have more of a foundation. You can then endure through that kind of thing. And so he lists off, it's real interesting here, what he considers the ABCs of the Christian faith. So this is the, the, the basics for him. And it's real interesting for a few different reasons. Um, he says, first, a foundation of repentance away from dead works and faith toward God. So, I mean, this is real basic holiness. There are some actions and lifestyles that aren't appropriate for Christians to be involved in. He says, hey, this is a foundation. This is a basic truth. This is an ABC type thing. You shouldn't do certain things. And instead, you should put your faith in God and obey him. Repentance from dead works. Instruction about washings. Um, this would include baptism and some other um, Judaic, uh, Judaic Jew, uh, Jewish type of uh, cleansing rites that they would do. Um, but outward symbols of uh, spiritual truth, so communion and baptism of those things. He says that's a, a basic truth. We, we don't need to go over this again. The laying on of hands, which would be prayer and community, how we pray for and with each other. The resurrection of the dead, which is the Christian hope that when Christ comes back, you and I will be bodily resurrected to spend eternity on a new heavens and a new earth. But there's not some spiritual state in heaven that we're sucked away from a physical world to float around forever. But we're, what happened, according to 1 Corinthians 15, what happened to Jesus will happen to us, will be resurrected, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. That one day, finally and fully, God will rid all of creation of every trace of evil. He says, these are the, the ABCs. He says, I don't want to go over these again. We should know these. We should have these down. Now, there's lots of interesting things about this list. Um, one is, I mean, this is kind of what the early church was doing. This is how they were attacking things. Then two, if we laid this up to what most Christians in America would consider an ABC of the faith, it seems to me like this would still be really advanced. Like, it seems like this would still be really kind of deep stuff. And so I can't tell you how many times talking to someone who seems like uh, they've never heard of even the possibility that Scripture is just they'd be resurrected one day. That there would be this resurrection of the dead, which to me is the hope of the Scriptures. Like, it's hard for me to imagine the Scriptures talking about the end times and the future without that idea. I mean, that's the hope. What happened? God will defeat death finally and fully. And this is the ABC says, I don't want to go over them again. There's a few reasons for this. One is that simple repetition of truths can be dangerous. Simple repetition of basic truths can be very, very, very dangerous. Um, so he doesn't, the author doesn't want to, I mean, he's not trying to replace these or move past them. He's trying to go deeper in them. But what he's saying here is if we just repeat the same stuff over and over and over and over again, it's not going to help anybody. Because what happens is when we repeat, I mean, simple repetition, the same things over and over again, when we come and hear and learn and teach and repeat the same things over and over again, what happens is you have someone who's been hearing it for 40 or 50 years, but they have no idea what it means. They have no idea what it means, and they've never experienced it for themselves. So we hear, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And they know it. They could repeat it to you. But 40 years in church, and they've never once experienced that. They never once know how that plays out in their life. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. The author's saying, let's not just repeat these simple truths. Let's work out how this plays out in real life, in everyday situations. The way that a vaccine works is they give you like a, just a tiny little bit of a disease, 
um, maybe a weakened portion of a disease, maybe full strength, and then your body kind of builds an immune system against it and is able to fight against it. Well, what's happened and happens with truths, particularly um, religious truths, is when you hear these basic things, you get inoculated to it. You get vaccinated to it. So here's what happens. You get just enough truth to make sure that you'll never be changed by it. You get just enough truth to make sure that it will never, ever affect you. will never produce what it's supposed to do in your life. So you'll know that God has a plan for you, but you'll spend your entire life without figuring out what that plan is, how it looks like, and how you're obedient to that. Why? Because all you ever did was repeat, God has a plan for me. God has a plan for me. God loves me. God loves me. Jesus died for my sins. He says, no, we need to move past that. And so you hear this story all the time. I mean, if you pay attention, I do, all the time. Um, so just yesterday, I was having lunch with a young man who used to come here. He's sitting across from me. He's in college now. And he's saying, it finally clicks. The things I've heard my entire life, and that makes sense. It was right. I shouldn't do things. I shouldn't do certain things. I should have faith. I should obey what God tells me to do. All these things that make sense to me. And I'm sitting across from him going, I mean, what made it click? Because you've heard these things, right? He goes, yeah, I've heard these my entire life. I mean, I've heard these from you. You've said it over and over and over again. But something had to click. We hear the story all the time. We hear it and we hear it and we hear it, but it never takes root in us. And so what the author wants us to do, what scripture is calling for us to do, is move on to maturity, away from the foundational beliefs and into maturity, into a deeper appreciation of what truth is. And so this is going to involve further thought, thinking things through, and then also application. How does that actually work out in my life? What steps do I take? How do I experience that? And so I'll give you just two quick examples. Um, you've got the scriptures saying very scary and very scary, ominous things about wealth. About wealth and a Christian. Where Jesus says, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Um, where the scriptures over and over again say uh, that you and I need to give money away, need to be very generous, need to not live extravagantly. I mean, there's, I mean, it's just all throughout the scriptures, whether you hear it or not. I mean, just read the Bible. It's all throughout. They're very serious, ominous things that make you question a lot of materialism, a lot of the things that we're surrounded by in America. Um, but we can hear that and know that. But it doesn't really affect our bank account. It doesn't really affect our wallet and things like that. So what the author, what scripture would be saying is, hey, let's think it through more deeply. So instead of just saying, hey, you should be generous. Hey, you shouldn't love money. What if we talked about and thought through the state of our hearts and worship? What are we worshiping when it comes to money? How should we worship God with our money? What if we thought about our role in God's story, in the kingdom, in the way that our money plays a part in that? What if we thought about whether we earned that money or God gave it to us? Whether we had something in us that we deserve that, or whether it's just God giving it to us to steward for his purposes. So instead of just repeating the same thing over and over again, he says, think it through. I mean, think deeply about it and then apply it. Then figure out what that looks like in your life with giving, with sharing, with those type of things. Another one is, is missional living. I mean, again, God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. But yet, I, I think most of us would have a hard time explaining what exactly that plan is, specifically, individually, for us. And how that plays out. Like, how that will play out tomorrow, later tonight, Tuesday, Wednesday. What's his plan for us? How is he using us? What's our role in the kingdom? So just think it through. Instead of just maybe saying, God has a plan for you, how about we unpack 2 Corinthians 5, which is the whole story of history, 
where God reconciles us and then gives us the task of joining him in reconciling the rest of creation. We think through our role. We think through how we share. We think through how we work and how we relate to our family and how we play with our friends. And then how we are ministers of reconciliation in and through all of that. And then we apply it. We work it out together in our everyday lives. He's saying let's move on from the ABCs into deeper and deeper growth and maturity. Into obedience and faithfulness to all that Christ has called from us. And then picking up in verse 4. He's going to give us a warning. And this is the warning again. He's going to say don't look down. And we're going to look down. And it's going to be very scary. He's going to give us this warning about, again, why we can't start over again. Why we can't slow down on this thing. Verse 4, he says this. It is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Its end is to be burned. So the author, he, he wants. Um, he wants his group of Christians, he wants his congregation that he's writing to, he wants them to move on to maturity. And what he's afraid of, the danger he's trying to point out, is the temptation to fall away. The temptation to fall away. A, a, kind of the historical church word that's used is apostasy. That you would once believe and put your faith in Christ and follow him and obey him and be faithful to him and then turn away from that. Then say, I don't believe that anymore, that's not how I'm going to live my life. And this is a very final, definitive thing. I mean, this is um, falling away completely, fully, finally. It's saying, that's not true, and I leave. And so throughout the book, we've seen Hebrews, um, he's over and over again going to go, keep going, keep going, please don't fall away, please don't slow down. We went in chapter 3 and 4, this whole long thing about the promised land, right? And he's comparing our lives to the journey to the promised land, saying we're right in front of the promised land. Don't miss out on the promised land like the Israelites did, like that first generation did. Keep going, make it into the promised land. Keep persevering. And once again, he doesn't want his um, group to fall away. And what he says, he says that if that happens, if one falls away, there remains no hope for them. So, so look at the wording here. He says, it's impossible. It cannot happen. This, in the Greek, it's very emphatic. This word is out of order in how you put a sentence together. And so he puts at the very beginning, impossible. It's impossible for those who have had these experiences to then what? To restore them again to repentance. There's no hope once they've fallen away. They can't go back. There's nothing to stop them from what they've chosen. And so here's the big question that everyone has when they get to this passage. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Can a Christian lose their salvation? I mean, can you be saved... And then turn away from it and lose your salvation, even to the point where you can't even go back. I mean, where it's impossible to be restored again to repentance. Um, now, what most people will do to answer this is the solution that they'll come up with is that these people that are being described aren't actually Christians. They don't actually have salvation. So usually how it gets played out is they are people who go to church, who are involved in the community, 
um, who have kind of experienced some spiritual things, but never really made it their own. Never really made that decision. Never really fully committed to um, following Christ. Um, and so that's real, the, the real popular, common um, way of interpreting these verses. Now there's just some problems with that. I mean, there's a few different problems with that um, in, in reading through this. The first is, I mean, look at, the, look at the list of things that happen here. It's the case of those who have once been enlightened, verse 4, who see, who see the whole world in a different way. They've been enlightened. Who have tasted the heavenly gift, who share in God's reign in heaven. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've been dwelt by the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've experienced the power that comes with following Jesus. With being part of the resurrection world, this new creation that's begun on the cross. So, you're going to have to work really hard to convince me that these things aren't talking about a Christian. Aren't talking about someone who's fully on board and on the team. Um, the second reason why I think that, that solution is maybe a little problematic is to commit apostasy, to fall away from something, means you have to be on something. I mean, you can't fall away, you can't quit the team if you're never on the team, right? I mean, you can follow the team around, you can hang out with them, you can be their water boy, but you still can't quit the team. You weren't on the team. There's no quitting it. Then he, he says it's impossible. Now, once again, we hear stories all the time. I know people who have been in this situation. I talked to one yesterday. They hung around. It wasn't their own. They hung around. They heard it. They experienced some things. They left, and then they came back. Seems like it's not impossible. Seems like it happens all the time. So that's a very common story in America, particularly. Um, lastly, I think this type of person that's being described in the solution, the proposed solution, uh, is a type of person that didn't exist back then. Um, so you and I, as Christians, uh, are very, we're anomalies. We're very unique. I mean, in, in the scope of history, you and I are weird Christians. By this fact, it's not really hard for us to be Christians. We don't lose much. In fact, throughout history, and even around the globe today, we can actually benefit from being Christians. Like, I don't know if you're in on the secret. You can make more money, in some cases, by being a Christian, by going to church. Chick-fil-A. You can have more friends by being a Christian. You can be more respected in your community by going to church, by doing those things, by having those faith. You can get elected to a public position by supporting this publicly. That's weird. That's never happened and doesn't happen in most of the world. We are anomalies. We are misfits in the Christian community. So it's easy for us to imagine someone who does this, who becomes a Christian, at least outwardly, but hasn't really made the commitments. That would have been very hard for them to imagine. We find out in chapter 10, these people, this group of people he's writing to, have already been through persecution and stood strong. So they're pretty committed to the whole process. I mean, they've lost stuff, they've lost friends, they might have been threatened with their lives and the lives of their families, and they've stayed true. He's talking, I believe, about someone who once fully followed, put their faith in Christ, but for whatever reason, at some point in their life, falls away completely, and he says it's impossible for them to get back. It's impossible for them to be restored again to repentance. The reason he gives is because by falling away, they're crucified again, the Son of God, 
and hold him up to contempt. What he's saying here is you've put yourself on the wrong team. To keep using this team analogy. You've put yourself on the team that says you are not the son of God. You were worthy of dying. And I'm holding you up to contempt. And once you do that, once you're on that team, um, you've lost the game. I mean, you've lost the game. Particularly if you were already on the correct team and you decided, no, I don't believe it. And he says, you, you move out of that camp and, and you're gone. There's no hope for you. It's impossible to go back. Now, here's what's happening here. The author, I think, has just told us as we're climbing up the mountain. He's trying to get us to maturity, to the top of this mountain. And he's just told us, don't look down. Because if you look down, you're going to see if you fall, you're not going to be able to stop. Like, you're not going to be able to catch yourself on the side of the mountain and climb back up. Like, if you fall, imagine yourself as that rock tumbling down farther and farther and farther and farther and farther. But again, that's not his point. His point is, hey, we're going up here. We're going this way. So, in fact, we'll even read in verse 9. He says, we're not going to fall. You're not going to fall. He says, I'm sure that you, this will not happen to, the people he's writing to. But he's just telling them, this is what would happen on our way if you were to fall off, if you were to abandon the cause, if you were to displace your faith in Jesus. So once again, notice, you have to notice, the warning is meant to spur Christian perseverance. He's talking to a group of Christians, not to people who have somehow fallen away from the faith, not to unbelievers. He's talking to Christians saying, hey, we need to keep going. We need to go forward. We can't go back. We can't stop. There's no out. We need to keep moving on. And then also notice that it's set in the broader context of all of Scripture. And we'll flesh this out in a little bit. But the, the author doesn't answer questions like, what, like, could a Christian lose their salvation? That's not his concern. That's not what the text is about. The text is about um, what it would mean if a Christian abandoned his faith. Again, in verse 9, he says it's not going to happen to the people he's talking to. He's sure of it. He knows it's not going to happen to them. But it's a warning. It's a don't look down. And so we're on that mountain, and we're climbing up. And I asked Steve, what's going to happen? Like, what would happen if I fell off? What would happen? How, what's your plan here? Like, what's the... And he goes, well, try not to look at the rocks who go all the way down to the bottom. Because that would be what would happen if you fell down. Now, I'm hoping... Now. I mean, it's just, the only way I can sleep at night is to think that Steve wasn't rolling the dice. That he wasn't like, like that he thought we were actually going to get to the top of the mountain, right? Not that he was like, well, we'll just see how this goes. Like, I hope they don't fall. I'll be real bad for our program. But that he was going, hey, we're getting to the top. You should be aware. I mean, if you look down, this is what would happen if you fall off. And I think this is what's happening here. And the rest of scripture would confirm the belief that you can't lose your salvation, that those who have begun a good work, God has begun a good work in them, Philippians 1.6, he will complete. His grace is on you and will carry you through the end, which I think the author will even argue for us. Um, and then he gives us this parable. He gives us this story, this explanation, um, to try to make sense of this all. And he says, you've got land, um, and if the land gets the rain, it gets the blessing from God, the nourishment, but then it, it doesn't produce anything, it's burnt. I mean, it's, it's not good for anything. However, if that same land gets the rain and then produces fruits, it's blessed by God. It's used by God. The idea here is we're looking at the final results. What will happen in the end? Will you be fruitful and faithful, or will you be fruitless? Will you be barren? We've talked before in Hebrews. The author is very concerned that you know it's not important, or just important, that you've started the faith journey. It's as important that you finish. 
It's just as important that you keep going strong. He's looking into the future saying, hey, we're going this way. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Now, in verse 9, he's going to transition again right out of this warning. And it's, it's important that we watch the language here. So you're going to see what I mean. I think his tone is completely different from what most people who look at this warning think it is. I think we, we're looking at this tree and we missed the forest, what he's actually saying. So look in verse 9 here. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Notice that word here. It's the first and only time we see it in this book. He's writing to his, his readers. He says, <coughs> beloved, dear friends, ones I care about so deeply. So First John, Pastor John and First John, Second John and Third John, we use terms like this a lot. He'll say, my little children, my beloved. I mean, he's very pastoral affectionate. Well, the author of Hebrews, not so much. I mean, he's more of a uh, in-your-face type guy. But here, right after this strict warning, he goes, but guys, my beloved. And he says, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here's what the author is saying. He says, I can look at this congregation. He says, I'm looking at your past. I'm looking at the way that God has worked in your life, at the love that you've shown, at the way that you have responded to the gospel. And I'm sure that this will not happen to you. I'm sure. He says, I can see it in the way that your life has changed. He, first of all, looks at their lives as a changed life as the primary evidence that God's grace has been on them, has started to work on them. And then he moves from that and says, because of that, he will not let you go. He says, God's grace is final and eternal. He says, God's not so unjust that he would overlook what he's begun to do in you. The life that you've begun to live. What the gospel has started to do in you as Christians. So, everyone look at me right here. The scriptures do not teach that you can lose your salvation. What's happening here in Hebrews is he's saying, don't look down. Because what would happen if you abandon your faith, if you were fully Christian and you fully and finally abandoned it, it's the same thing that happens to all who abandon faith. All who reject Christ for their salvation. But the scripture is saying, hey, we're going this way. We're going up the mountain. So he's writing saying, hey, don't look down, but we're going this way. We're going this way. And just like we're on that mountain and Steve's giving us advice. Hey, step here. Don't step here. Let me get you to the top. Even He says, be imitators of those who are inheriting the promises. So we would look at the people walking ahead of us and go, they stepped on that rock. It wasn't a very good idea for them. I'm not going to step there. He says, this is what we're doing. We're moving this way. We're moving this way. Be imitators of those who are inheriting the promises. He says, uh, here's the mystery. It's a tension in Scripture. So we've seen this all throughout Hebrews. We'll keep seeing it in Hebrews. The tension is that God, in the end, is the only one in control of anything. The scriptures are very clear about that. It's His grace that saves us. I mean, we do not even have a, a part in it. You did not choose God. The scriptures are very clear. God chose you. You did not earn your salvation. God gave you salvation. You do not contribute anything to God's team. 
God has never looked down and gone, that guy's really impressive. I want him on my side. No, he's not short of cash. He doesn't need your wallet. He's not short on skills or influence. He picks you from sure grace. He lavishes his love and grace on you. But here's the tension. On the other side, the scriptures say things like this passage, which is work. Persevere. So the real famous one, Paul in Philippians is going to say this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then there's a second part that comes right after it. If you remember, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, according to his good purposes. Now here's the mystery of scripture. You have to have both. You have to have both phrases. You have to have work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then you have to have, but understand, it's God who's working. Because otherwise, you get lazy Christians, sluggish Christians, Christians who will do the unthinkable, who just fall off the mountain. The mystery in Scripture, the tension, is that we're called to energetic work, despite God's grace. He says, don't be sluggish, but work. Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. They're found, these promises, salvation, forgiveness, the mountain top. They're found through faith, trust, obedience, and then patience. A slow, steady moving towards him and away from ourselves, away from sin. If we had more time, we could talk some more about this. Be imitators. This is a community act. This is a together let's do this. and Let's find people who are ahead of us in the journey and let them give us advice. Watch how they've gotten to where they are. To be imitators of those who are inheriting the promises. So the author of Hebrews, and he'll, he'll spend a little bit more time talking about this promise, and that's what we'll do next week. But then seven, he's going to jump back into Melchizedek, because he thinks his readers are ready. And he thinks it's important for them. But he wants them to understand, in the Christian life, there's no stopping. There's no slowing down. There's no going back, even. And he says, if you do that, I mean... What, what, play that out for 40 years if you repeat the same thing over and over again. Never grow in obedience. Never grow in faithfulness. Never grow in the way that the gospel affects your life. He says, what, what do you think at that point? Like, do you think you've actually engaged with it at all? And he says, and look down. What would happen if you were on board and then you stepped off board? He says, but you and I were going up. You and I are going towards the promises. So let's work and let's trust. Let's praise and worship his unending, perfect, sovereign, undeserved grace that will carry us the entire way. And then let's keep putting one foot in front of the other in small acts of obedience, small acts of faithfulness. I mean, here's a situation that you and I find ourselves in. We are however extreme and weird and sometimes hard to believe that it is, we are redeemed. We're saved. Christ has found us. We've put our faith in him. So the scriptures say that because of his sacrifice, we are forgiven completely, perfectly, wholly, and fully. And that our destination, along with history, is toward an eternal glory. One day Christ comes back. He rips open the skies. New heavens, new earth. Resurrection. And then all pain, Revelation. 
all death, all sickness, all tears, all mourning, they're gone. This is where we're headed. Even in Sugarland, Texas, and in Houston, in 2011 and 2012, in the summer and during the fall and in the spring. Despite the distractions around us, despite the doubts that we have, despite our own failings that would try to convince us otherwise, this is what's true of us. This is where we're going. But he says again, on the way, there are these distractions. There are all these pitfalls. We're still in the wilderness before the promised land. And so he's looking at his, his congregation. And the scriptures are still speaking to us this morning saying, Hey, persevere. Hey, be faithful. Hey, don't be content with a stagnant life or a stagnant faith. Don't be content with staying in the same place. Don't, don't pretend like that's not a dangerous life to live. The gospel is one of heading towards maturity. He says what we need to do is we need to move and grow and deepen. We need to think through the truths of the gospel. We need to learn how to apply them to our lives. If we don't, there's only bad things for us. So we move on. We press forward, trusting and worshiping together as community. And this is what FC Cubed is. There's a small group of people in, in First Colony, in Sugarland, Greater Houston area, who have come together to say, hey, together, as imperfect as we are, let's do this thing together. Let's worship together. Let's live life together. Let's learn how to take these steps of faith and patience and obedience and faithfulness together. Let's encourage each other. Let's challenge each other. And let's find ourselves moving up the mountain. Let's find ourselves closer and closer and closer to the promised land as God's grace guides us the entire way. And by his grace, like verse 3, we'll get there. But for now we persevere. For now we work. For now we imitate. And we intentionally live out our faith with patience and obedience. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for our time this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. Uh, I pray that even in difficult um, passages and portions that you would give clarity, um, that the scriptures would do what they were given to us to do, which is encourage us and build us up, which is to prepare us, to equip us for the work that you've given us. I pray that even today um, we would further be formed and shaped into your people, that we would be able to not only worship you and follow you as fully as we possibly can, but then also to be able to be used by you in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods. I pray that as, as we as a community move up the mountain, as we keep walking forward, not only would we walk with each other, but we would have our eyes open up to the people around us to pull on board. In Sugarland, in Houston, in our schools, in our work. Be with us, Father. We need you. Here's, I mean, here's what we know. We know we need you. But we know that doesn't excuse us from hard work and effort. So we pray that you'd strengthen us, you'd guide us, that you'd allow us to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of all that you are and all that you've done for us. We praise you. We love you. Keep us moving forward towards you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, now.